Hello and welcome to Eavesdropping at the Movies. I'm Mike. And I'm Jose. And today we're talking about Come and See. This film has a reputation. It's a Russian film from 1985, directed by Elim Klimov. It comes up with people online, things like that, war films. People always bring up Come and See. And they kind of bring it up in the way that to me always suggests that they haven't actually watched it, but they've just heard other people mention it. Mm. You know, so this kind of thing gets around that it is the greatest war film of all time. And in particular, it kind of has the greatest anti-war message of all time and it's a very very hard watch but like I say it always kind of seems to me that people say that in a way that suggests they haven't actually seen it it's just part of this kind of cultural thing that it gets passed around and no one's actually sat down and watched it we have now it's interesting actually you posted on Facebook just before uh, we watched the film this is what we're watching tonight and seven or eight people came out and said oh great film wonderful film I believe they've seen it well you know (laughs) I think one of the people has written a a book about films of World War One, so I'm sure he saw lots of war films but actually, it's not the kind of film that I would have expected many of my friends to see, though, you know, perhaps I'm wrong. Mm. I mean, some people in that post also said, oh, you know, I couldn't possibly watch it, yeah. you know. Uh, so Eastern European cinema and Russian cinema doesn't get around, doesn't circulate very much. You know, there's Tarkovsky, and that's about it. Yeah, there's like <laughs> right. two or three big names, and, and uh, Klimov is not one of them, really. Well, um, he is in other circles, but all this to say that, you know, the, these films are difficult to see, you know, they, they're not part of the canon per se, which is very much orientated towards, you know, France, England, the US, and that's, you know, about it, to be honest. So, um, Japan, mm. yeah. So, so, I'm not surprised that the film, people might not have seen it, you know, I certainly hadn't. You know. Yeah, and to be fair, I'm talking completely out of prejudice. Maybe everyone online who says they've seen it has seen it. I just tend to think they're lying. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. you can you can usually tell. Yeah, I think you maybe can. Anyway, um, the film is uh, set in 1943 Belarus. At the time, Belarus was a Soviet socialist republic, mm-hmm. and it was kind of the gateway through Poland to Russia. So it was important in Operation Barbarossa, which was the Nazi attempt to invade Western the Western Soviets. Union mm. to occupy Lebensraum, all of that kind of stuff. Because basically, it sits east of Poland, north of Ukraine, west of Russia. It's it's the doorway mm. to Russia. So Operation Barbarossa was nineteen forty one, and by this point, the Nazis are occupying. And the film begins with a couple of kids on a beach playing. These are Belarusian kids. Well, they seem to be playing. They're also digging for uh, rifles, right? So there's an old guy there who's telling him, don't dig, don't dig, the Germans are going to see you. And you're kind of going, what's going on here? Mm. They are searching for rifles on the bodies of these German soldiers who've been killed by partisans, Belarusian partisans, Mm. freedom fighters, you know, resistance fighters. Once they've got a gun, the credits roll, it's like they they can join the resistance, right? And as the film develops, it's possible to get into spoiler territory, and obviously we will, right? You follow this 14-year-old kid called Fleora, played by Alexei Kravchenko, who was a non-professional actor at the time. He was cast because, you know, that would be authentic and you'd be able to get these kind of realistic responses from him, all that kind of stuff. That was the idea. He became a professional actor subsequently. Mm, He's very well cast. Yeah, I agree. So he goes off to join the partisans, immediately loses them. They leave him behind, essentially being nice to him, even though he doesn't see it that way, when they go off Mm. uh, on a mission because he'll be immediately killed. The camp is attacked, he goes off to other places, meets up with other people, and you're taken on this 
ad hoc kind of road trip through Second World War Belarus, through all these villages that are being destroyed. And every time you get to something, when he goes back home, it's been destroyed. He well, doesn't quite realise that, but the girl he's with does. Well, yeah. because she sees it and he doesn't. Yeah, exactly. Um, he believes that his family has escaped and she has to kind of knock it into him. Yeah. You've touched on the important things, which is that the film begins with these kids playing at war and seeing the glory and the romance of war. And then the the whole of the rest of the film is about disillusioning them from that, you know, showing them and us all of the horrors of war. Yeah, or uh, specifically him, because I think you only see that the other kid right at the start, don't yes. you? Yes. Um, um, and the film is a gradual descent into the worsening horrors of war. Hmm. You know, so what I'm going to say is like, when he gets back to his village, it has been destroyed. And as you go on to further villages, you have this knowledge that they are going to be destroyed. Hmm. You know what I mean? Hmm. And then you get to see it happen. So it's this kind of worsening thing where you see aftermath at first. Hmm. And the, the aftermath gets worse. So the initial aftermath you see is of a burnt out village. And you get this one shot of the corpses that the kid doesn't see. And then you get to see the one survivor who's that old man who's been burned horribly. So it's like you see the aftermath twice and the second time it's worse. It's a really smooth kind of transition from from innocence to experience, I suppose. You know, for you and for the character as things yes. get worse. In my experience, and you know, I'm not a big fan of war films, you know, but this is certainly the film that most evokes the horrors of war. You know, so kind of when our friends were saying, oh, you know... It, I couldn't possibly see that or whatever. I actually didn't find it difficult to see at all. I mean, I mean, I was shocked and, you know, I responded and, mm. you know, yeah. But um, I always found it engaging and understandable and I knew what was happening and I wanted to find out more. I mean, I didn't find it unbearable, you know, though maybe I should. But, no, I, uh, I agree with you. I think, for one thing, we didn't see it in the cinema, so this isn't some re-release that we've seen. It's a restoration from 2017. It's a beautiful restoration. An incredible restoration. I never really thought I expected it to look as good as this. Yes. I, I, I suppose I expect it to look like near realism or something. I expect it to look cheap. It really doesn't. Mm. Um, it looks beautiful. The film kind of quality is beautiful, and the production design the is... colour is beautiful. This must have been a really expensive film to make, actually. Yeah, it's very, very high-quality kind of look all round. And I think, visually things get worse as the film goes on. So it's only by the end you see these real kind of, like almost like, to some degree, like Hieronymus Bosch horrors, you know, where the church is on fire and people have been forced in there and it's disgusting. But what's really disgusting is the actions of the Nazis that have done that, you know. Mm. So it's like the taking of the photo with the kid, with the gun to his head, as a photo opportunity. Like, that's disgusting, mm. you know. And I'm not saying that's more disgusting than putting people in a church and setting it on fire, but there's something especially sadistic about that. There's, there are especially sadistic things that you see, but they do come towards the end. So I agree with you. I'm not kind of... I wasn't... I didn't feel shocked, appalled throughout most of the film. I felt maybe nervous about where things would go. Mm. Um, but it wasn't hard to watch in mm. that sense. I did, you know, you're not watching it behind <laughs> behind your fingers. There are things about it that are so beautiful. All the scenes in the forest with the girl, yeah, with you know that green green mm. of the forest that they're in, with that kingfisher bird or whatever it is, the one the one with the yellow beak, the big. Was it a heron? Might be a heron. Those were all kind of very poetic and beautiful, and you think, oh, well, you know, these are kids who are just going to get by, right? Like, you know, and it reminded me in an odd way about John Borman's Hype and Glory. Have you ever seen that? No. 
It's a film about kids, but set during the Blitz. You know, what you get is kids being kids. Yeah, so even during the Blitz, they play. <laughs> yeah, mm. kind of. They play games in all the bombed out shelters and, you know, kind of, you know, horrible stuff is happening around them and they're being bombed and whatever. But to them, it's just a game, right? Mm. And there were certain scenes that I think, well, the film... So the scene at the beginning with the other boy when they're digging for their rifles... And then the scene with the girl in the forest, you think, oh, it might be, you know, that has a little bit of that. Yeah, that kind mm -hmm. of, you know, here are these two beautiful kids in this forest and, you know. But actually, the film goes into much deeper and darker areas than that. Yeah, yeah absolutely. I kind of thought, you know, maybe initially I thought, oh, this is going to be kind of trite with the kids, you know, kind of growing up too quickly sort of thing. But, you know, actually it really worked for me. I, I did wonder whether... I wonder what it was going to do with the Nazis, because you were going to see the Nazis eventually, and you mm. do. Um, I wondered whether there would be, you know, an equivalent 14-year-old kid on that side. You know what I mean? And there would be some equivalence drawn between, well, the, a lot of these are just kids too, but no, like, the, these Nazis are the worst of the worst. I think they're based on... What was that division of Nazis that was all criminals? I don't know. Um... I forget the name of it, but, but was, it was like the, the most sadistic kind of thing, and it was like the though, suicide squad. Although I'm not sure that it is. I mean, because, you know, you're basically told that they're not. Like, you know, we're Germans, we're not like that, blah, 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 blah. Yeah, that's what so, they say once they've been No, but you caught. also get a sense, like, from the officers that, you know, it's not a particular gang. I, I mean, they are doing the most evil things, mm. you know, but they don't see themselves that way, right? And... You don't get a sense that they're particular, you know, that there's the criminal band of the Nazis. You just get the sense they are the Nazis. I think that's just <laughs> when you meet them. I mean, I was going based on their based on their actions and the glee with which they perform those actions, the glee they take in them, you know, which yes. you see when they're doing it. And I think you're right, though, when they're caught and they catch about 10 or 11 of them beneath that bridge, and the one in particular is, as you say, he's pleading with them, saying this isn't who we are, we had orders and so on. But there's the one, the younger guy, who was overseeing the trapping in the church, mm -hmm. who says, no, this is us, you're a coward, tell them what I'm saying, you, you guys don't deserve to have a nation and our mission will be complete and so on. He's the one who really believes in it. And, and I think it's important that he's younger. He's more. a little bit like that Nazi in Cabaret who sings Tomorrow Belongs to mm. Me, right? Because, you know, you see this beautiful boy and he's blue-eyed and blonde, you know, and like a little godling. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, he sings this uh, song in this beautiful voice and, you know, and, and the song has a particular melody, right? And then kind of, it takes you a while to realize what horrible things he's saying, right? Like, mm. you know, and I think there's almost, I, I'm not sure if it's a citation, you know, but that particular Nazi is coded in the same way. Oh, for sure. Yeah, yeah it's more Aryan. Yeah, the blonde hair, the blue eyes, but he's beautiful, which yeah. the other ones aren't, right? So... What year was Cabaret? 72. 72. Because this began production in 77. Mm. And then because of the fight to get past the censors and so on, it didn't get made for eight years. And my understanding is that the censorship wasn't about the story, the content, or the messaging as much as the aesthetics. Oh. And uh, because ultimately this film was made, as far as I'm aware, without compromise, you know, without compromise to censorship as far as the director wanted it. And he wrote it too, co wrote it. So you get the sense that, like, it's not the messaging, right? The messaging is these people were the victims in this and the Nazis are completely the aggressors. That's not a problem for, you know, the state to promote. The problem would be the aesthetics, which ultimately they seem to have come around to. I mean, there are some images 
that I'm sure I'll never forget in my life, really. You know, the the boy with the gun in his head, the girl from the beginning with her legs full of blood. Yeah, mm. as she appears. Um, I mean, the interesting thing is that the film is filmed really lushly. The image is very dense and textured and colorful. I'm sure that, you know, certain images would have been found offensive, for sure. And some of the scenes are absolutely harrowing. So um, you mentioned, you know, the Nazis at the end. But I thought one of the interesting things about the film is how you think there's a spectral presence initially, right? So they're dead. Or you see the planes overhead, which is like a recurrent motif, Mm. right? Then you begin to see, to hear rustling sounds. You know, then you see people kind of appear in the fog. Yeah, then you see formations. But actually, you don't see any faces or any real people, right? Like, so for much of the film, maybe the first hour, mm. they're almost spectral. Yeah, they're, they're there, but really out of sight or barely seen or flitting by, right? And I thought that was, like, kind of really beautiful because, of course, you know, in the last half of the film, they appear with all the yeah. messiness, right? I, it kind of made me think of because I agree with you I think it reminded me of um, Suspiria in fact the original Suspiria which we watched recently where we were talking about the fairy tale aspect to it mm. there's something fairy tale in the first half or so of this I think where you know like you say you have these kind of ghostly presences I think a part of it and the kind of walking around the woods yes. not kind of knowing what's there it's kids right and there's the a handsome food Gretel. and the cauldrons and the exactly family. they go home and the cauldron's yeah. still hot the, the, the stove the pot on the stove is still warm mm. and there's like a Hansel and Gretel thing with the two kids and they have an interesting little kind of slightly flirtatious relationship you know there's some playfulness to it but they're in this very dark world yes. where you know danger kind of lurks and there's something about it being seen through the eyes of children, you know, that gradually falls away as the horrors become more and more real. Yeah. You know, and and you get this repeated shot of the boy's face, and it's in close-up, and it's you know, kind of um, maybe not quite breaking the fourth wall, but he's certainly staring towards the camera, if not directly down the barrel. I think at the end he stares directly at the camera. Yeah, this is one I thought. Like throughout the rest of the film, I thought, oh, they're staring just past the camera. Mm. That's what it felt like. But right at the end, it was really mm. direct, wasn't it? Um, but throughout, they are staring at least towards the camera, you know, and the camera is, is face onto them, and they're in shallow focus. It's it's a portrait shot of them, and particularly of this boy most of the time. And you could just track the film by like how much dirt is on his face, and scars, and blood, and the bags under his eyes, and dust, and his hair going grey. He ages, you know, throughout the film, despite the fact he's still clearly fourteen at the end. But he has miles on him by the end. Yes. Initially, there are some scenes where he looks really beautiful. He's got beautiful skin and these rosy lips, right? And even though he's already had several adventures, there's kind of like a glow about him. But certainly, you know, from the second half of the film onwards, his skin dries up. You know, you see the bloodied lips that are chapped until the last final shot. It's kind of... um, and it's a very evocative and very forceful image. It's, it's staring you right in the face. Like I say, even if he's not quite staring you in the face, the image is. You're forced to confront the effects of all this pestilence on this young boy. Mm. You know, throughout, straight, you know, kind of face up. And most of the time the film doesn't, isn't afraid to look at something, I suppose. Like when you see that the village has been burned and then you see the old man who the, seems to be the one survivor and he's 
extremely badly burned. You might expect another film to to turn away from it or something, but here he gets dialogue and the camera's close up on him and you see the extent of his scarring quite deeply. It's horrible to look at. Yes. You know. I mean I think the most brutal things to see are people's glee at the suffering of others. Yeah, in that scene in the one that you're describing as the Hieronymus Bosch scene, <laughs> yeah. right, where all the Nazis turn up. And again, very similar to, you know, what is said, you know, happened with the Jews. They trick them into entering this building, right? They said, you know, come with your papers and bring enough food for two days and whatever. And really, they're just going to kill them all, right? Mm. And that's kind of when the film unleashes itself, right? And you get like this incredible scene of of gleeful violence brutality evil happening almost everywhere in the frame like you know the the image always has a focus but there are always lots of things happening around it yeah mm. you know the dogs the, the the clown the women the the pleasure in the violence mm. i think it's kind of i'm almost like you know just having trouble processing it really it was kind of so so vivid and brutal and in long takes, and with a kind of a moving camera often. Yeah, so you get like the sweeping panorama of, of gleeful brutality, of a pleasure in the pain of others, you know, which one kind of rarely sees in cinema except through cartoon villainy, yeah? Bop, 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 ha, 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 yeah. yeah. But like, actually, you don't see the effects of the, yeah, mm. of, of the brutality, whereas this one kind of shows it to you at all times. Yeah, reminded me of Silo when you got to that scene. The, um, oh, the glee and the sadism. Yeah, that's interesting because, yeah, there's almost no sexuality in this, really. No, you get the girl being dragged off, but the, you don't see anything. That's one of the times when the film doesn't choose to look. Mm. Is that, and I suppose you could say it doesn't choose to look at the inside of the church when it's burning either, which it could do. Yes. Um, but it uh, doesn't, it stays outside. Yes. I think those are ethical decisions, really. Yeah, probably. No, they are. I mean, it would have been just too much to bear, really. Uh, And so, you know, it's an unflinching look, but it's also a respectful look. Yeah, like, you know, so you see all those men running after the girl who's thrown in the truck. Yeah, Mm. but, you know, you don't see what happens in the truck. And I do think that's a choice and it's a decision. And Yeah, Yeah. you see the aftermath. You you, You do meet her again staggering back towards the village the morning after her legs dripping with blood mm. um, but that's you don't see what happened in in between yeah what about the imagery that you see of real footage of starving people and corpses um, I'm not sure exactly where that footage comes from like if it's from Belarus but it's no, certainly it's simply not. World War 2 footage it's World War 2 footage and some of it is Auschwitz footage I recognise it right and my reading of it Though, as I said, I'm still processing, so I'm not going to, like, you know, put myself at the cross of this reading. But um, I think it wanted to make an analogy between what the Nazis did in the concentration camps and so on and what they did in these 628 Belarusian villages. Mm. Uh, Which, you know, they killed everybody and they killed everybody in the most brutal way possible. You know, um, that's... Yeah. Uh, I suppose I was asking in 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 sense of it being ethical. The film hasn't shown us anything that was real footage up until now, documentary footage, and now it chooses to just for a few seconds. I think uh, what I didn't like about that 
So, so uh, let me backtrack a little bit. I liked it, and I thought it was purposeful. Mm. You know, it was trying to say this is part of World War Two, yeah. Mm. And there's a you know the film is almost like backtracking as if you know it would be possible to erase all of this, right? But I think what I don't like about the film is it has a kind of a great man theory of history or something, right? It's all Hitler's fault, and I think in doing so, it's a paradoxical thing because. The Germans are shown in the worst light possible. I don't think, you know, I've I've seen them depicted this bad, this evil, you know, even in like Hollywood films or you know cheap Hollywood melodramas. But on the other hand, the film absolves the German nation by blaming it all on Hitler. The original title of the film was "Kill Hitler." Right. Well, you know, I think yeah. you know, World War Two was 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 about more than Hitler. And though the soldiers tried to blame it all on Hitler, the German soldiers, oh, we were forced to do it, we were ordered to do it, right? Mm-hmm. Like a lot of the debates around the Nuremberg trial, this is my fault, I had to follow orders. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, you know, the film on the one hand seems to be saying, but you did this, so you die. And on the other hand, it says it was all Hitler's fault at the end as well, which I didn't like, unless I'm misreading it somehow. Well, I, I actually did feel the end... The end was, was interesting, and it really surprised me when... Um, so after these Germans have been shot by the villagers, the boy sees this portrait that we've seen a few times of Hitler, and it says Hitler the Liberator at yes. the bottom. And he shoots it, and as he shoots it more and more, you see real footage of Hitler and real footage of all things surrounding Hitler, real documentary footage, and they reverse. You know, buildings collapsing, they reverse, so they, you know, like Tenet, mm. you know. They are restored to their original state, and it all speeds up and speeds up and speeds up, and the kid takes four or five shots, and it's all happening in this kind of cacophony of noise and image. And then you get to an image of baby Hitler on his mother's lap, yes. and the kid doesn't shoot. And, you know, I think you're meant to read that as the kid holding on to his humanity, I guess, realising that Hitler is a person... It was something that I found quite trite about it, though, and actually, maybe that's what I feared about them doing that with showing a fourteen-year-old Nazi boy, you know, having the same, you know, in the same position as him. That actually felt cheap is not quite the right word, but it's a little simple. And the film has has offered an invited kind of real, real complex emotional reactions to what you're seeing. I think that image can be read more complexly as well. Yeah, yeah, because everything backtracks. Right, and you see him as a young man, you see him in different guises, and I don't know, the kid literally shoots at, well, he shoots at some of them, but then, you know, when he's a baby, he stops shooting. He can't shoot a baby, right? And I think, well, you know, you could read that in many ways. I, you can read it as, I won't shoot a baby, mm-hmm. right? Whereas the Germans in this film have been shown killing babies throughout yeah. the film. Uh, and actually, the fact that it's children, yeah, is underlined over and over and over again. Mm. But also, it can be read as this child is still to be made, right? Like, you know, whatever turned this child into Hitler is not inevitable. I mean, a child is all potentiality and presumably can grow up in different ways, right? Unless you believe that, like, somebody's inherently evil and they're the devil and so on. But I wouldn't think that that would be the case here because they're communists. <laughs> so, yeah, they don't have that sense of God. There's something, there's something, there's something <laughs> trite about that too still. You know, you know, his crimes haven't been committed yet because he's still a baby. But I don't know. that I, I, I wasn't that crazy about it. I did like that. 
did like the scene up until then. I liked the sequence. I liked how you... I mean, you felt you're in this kid's head when this is happening, and every time he gets to an image of Hitler, he shoots at it. Yeah. You know, and that's it's quite visceral. You're um, in this kid's head throughout most of the film. I was really fascinated by the use of sound in that regard. Mm. Yeah, how he's shell-shocked. So, you know, for entire sequences, you don't hear, you know, kind of what's happening, except in this very muted way. Yeah. You hear the sounds of the forest. Yeah, it's all kind of, you know, very subjective and... It's done through sound rather than point of view alone, yeah? Yeah, well, with point of view, you're not entirely with him because there yeah. is that shot that we've pointed out where the girl sees the bodies in in, the, in his village and he doesn't, and yeah. we see them. So yes. there are times, at least, when uh, we're given a perspective on things that he isn't. Yes. But for the most part, we are basically situated within his point of view. Mm. And it is, it, you're right, the sound design is very powerful, in doing that. Although, again, there's something interesting, you know, right at the end when that Mozart comes in, that's not Mozart that this kid would ever have heard. Where's that coming from and what's, you know, what's the purpose of it? It's very light. It's a very very famous piece. You know, there's something, because he goes off at that point to, to rejoin some more partisans who he spotted running through the woods and we kind of go through the woods with him and there's something light about it at that point, despite I, everything we've seen. I didn't find it light. I found it religious. I mean, I don't know what the piece is, though. It, I recognise it. Um, but I don't know what it's called. Isn't it Lacrimosa? I think. Let me just quickly note that. Well, Lacrimosa already doesn't sound light. <laughs> what does Lacrimosa mean in English? Requiem. It is, it's a requiem, isn't it? I think in Italian it means something to do with tears. That's mm. it, yeah. Lacrimosa meaning. Latin for weeping or tearful. Yeah. You're welcome. <laughs> Quite right. <laughs> there are many scenes that fascinated me. So there are things that almost seep into your skin, right? Like, uh, you know, the scene where he travels through the bog to see if his mom and sisters have found refuge in the island. Mm. And he finds that, in fact, some villagers have, but not his own parents. Uh, and there was something about just using the um, the butt of the gun to make their way through the bog, mm. right? That you, it's almost like you felt it, right? You know, you felt the grit of of the mud and the cold, and it, it goes on for quite a while. He shows mm. you that, you know, the struggle that that is, yeah, to reunite what can no longer be reunited. So that really fascinated me. The other scene that fascinated me was when he and a band of people from a ba- uh, three or four other men from the island go and try to get food because everyone is starving in the island and in order to get food they have to travel through this forest but in the middle of the forest there's this plain yeah there's this empty deforested area where they're easy targets for german snipers mm. right and there was something about the way that that was shot yeah almost like lethal or macho or yeah mm. as they travel and and that scene lingers you know for quite a while as well right like they travel a bit and you know and then all of a sudden like all the snipers come in and you know and then they stand up and continue and they're laughing even i think you know mm. as they do so and then obviously one of them is hit and so on but the duration of that scene, the way that it unfolds, the character's attitude to it, the fact that you don't see any German person, it's just, you know, lights, yeah, mm. um, 
I thought, I mean, I have to think about that some more. I thought it was like incredible. Yeah, and there's a, um, I think there's a, a black comedy to some of it as well. They have to retreat, and there's this thing about the cow and trying to get the cow back. And then the cow dies, and it's like everything they do is just doomed in some way or another, and they're trying to get this cow across a field. And what are the odds? There's something darkly comic about that to me. Well, I mean, I think the film is so great because it's darkly comic, it's moving, it makes you understand. I mean, you know, after all the trouble that they've taken with the cow, right, and they're lacking everything. And there's that moment at the end where he just stabs into the cow, almost as if, you know, eating a bit of the raw meat that she provides, yeah? Mm. You get the sense of need and frustration, and yeah? And on the other hand, as they're leaving with the cow, it is almost comic, right? And certainly you're made to see the beauty of the cow, and, you know, there's also, again, almost like a haptic thing, you know, about the milking and the drinking of the milk. It's almost like... You could feel their hunger, yeah, like kind of, mm-hmm. you know, they're saying, oh, this is like heaven, yeah, and it's almost like as if they haven't had any calories in their body for weeks or something, right? Like, it's, the film is, is really wonderful at conveying all those bodily, yeah, needs, yeah. you know. And the film's definitely content to live in the absurd from right at the start when you really don't know what's going on with the kids playing and the kid, you know, the one kid who's, who's searching out, the other kid, Fleora, is hiding, and the one kid searching me out has, you know, he, put, he, he affects this voice that it's really not coming from his throat, is it? Mm. It's like a, it's almost like an electronically modulated, like evil deep voice that he puts on. And you hear the voices like this once or twice in the rest of the film. It's just something very, something off about them. And when uh, Fleora first meets the girl in the woods, and she's behaving in quite a weird way to, to the point where he goes, "You're crazy," mm. you know. She's saying some odd stuff, and you, you get the what is she doing? How is she teasing him? Does she mean what she's saying? There were some weird interactions between them. Putting was it putting like rose petals on his body? Um, yes, um, I don't know. I thought I thought all of that. I found all of that really both tender and and youthful and exuberant. I mean, those scenes in the forest are what is lost. By the war. I think it's certainly true that no matter what you can imagine the kids will go through when you see them that early on, it's nothing compared to what you actually end up seeing them go through. That's right. Um, um, it's it's really impossible to imagine the kind of... I think it's easy to kind of uh, give people the wrong impression, actually, about the film, because we've already said that for a long time it's it's not full of this brutality. No, and it's not unbearable. No. You know? no. Um, like I said, I'm still trying to process it. I think it's really beautiful. It's great filmmaking. Um, you know, some of the some of the shots are amazing because, I mean, they'll often begin by following two or three people, and then you know the camera goes on and on and on and on, right, following them, and then you'll get into this vista of war and people running through fields and dogs and tanks and, yeah, I mean, the direction of that must have been incredible. Just mm-hmm. you know the mechanics of it, you know, of getting these people moving in these particular ways, yeah, so that they're in the frame and on camera. Uh, I found it really gobsmacking, actually. Wonderful. Well, you know, thank you for um, showing me this, actually. I kind of... I don't think I I would have without your suggestions, and I'm very, very glad I saw it. It's very interesting what comes your way and what doesn't, and, you know, people easily confuse what comes your way as what is, right? So I think it's great to discover, I mean, works, you know, staggering works like this, you know, that are not quite in your field of vision. Mm. 
And I'm glad I watched it because now whenever someone, you know, says online, oh, this is a great film, you say, have you seen it though? Have you actually seen it? I've seen it now. And I'm better than you. You could ask them, what did you think of the use of the fog? Yeah. <laughs> that's what always used to get me, you know. When people like, at university would have conversations about The Godfather and I'd be there trying to wing it, going, yeah, I've totally seen it. <laughs> and then someone would ask you, what did you think of the closing shot? Yeah. And you go, love it. Exactly. <laughs> It's that, or you just walk out of the room. <laughs> I'm not having this conversation anymore. <laughs> All right, so shall we wrap up? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so highly recommended, mm. and it is available. Uh, so do do see it if you can. It's really a, a, a staggering work, and um, you know, very very beautiful, very deeply moving, and I think kind of really complex in a very accessible way. And I would say, don't be turned off by that reputation that it has, because. You know, part of that reputation is that it's incredibly hard to watch. Mm. And it's not. Yeah. All right. Thank you very much uh, for listening. We are eavesdropping at the movies and we are on. Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud and YouTube. On social media, we're on Facebook and Twitter. And the website is eavesdroppingatthemovies.com. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Oh, just incidentally as well, um, uh, do you know where the title Come and See comes from? Oh, come, well, no. It comes from the um, Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse. Oh. Um, so there's the seven seals on this scroll in Revelations that God has, I think, something like this, which is where the seventh seal comes from as well, mm. Bergman. Um, and as each one of the first four opens, a horse, is, you know, a horse comes out and it's like, the colour is described and like the weaponry or the people following it, and this and this... They're variously interpreted as like war, pestilence, famine, death. Mm. And that's the first four. And each one describes it and it says, come and see. Mm. Invites you to see the apocalypse. Ah. Which is pretty bang on for the film. If they're not going to call it Kill Hitler.